We have a number of readings again today. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 10 and 12, and Revelation chapter 2, starting with Acts 2 verses 42 and 46 to 47. These are God's words. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and the prayers, and day by day, continuing steadfastly with one accord in the temple and breaking bread at home, they took their food with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now Hebrews ten twenty three to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope that it waver not, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the custom of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day drawing nigh. Now Hebrews twelve eighteen to 29. For ye are not come unto a mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, and unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard begged that no more word should be spoken unto them. For they could not endure that which was commanded. If even a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so fearful was the appearance that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable hosts of angels in festal gathering, and to the congregation, the ecclesia, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven... And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh, speaketh better than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not when they refused him that warmed them on earth, much more shall not we escape who turn away from him that warneth from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more will I make to tremble not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that have been made, that those things which are not shaken may remain. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace, whereby we may offer service or worship well-pleasing to God, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." And finally, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, he that walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know thy works, and thy toil and patience, and that thou canst not bear evil men, and didst try them that call themselves apostles, and they are not, and didst find them false. And thou hast patience, and didst bear for my name's sake, and hast not grown weary. But I have this against thee, that thou didst leave thy first love. Remember, therefore, whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I come to thee, and will move thy lampstand out of its place, except thou repent. These are God's words. You may be seated. We're continuing today with our series on what makes a church a church, and we've seen in the past couple of weeks that a church is a body governed by Christ, its head, and we've also spent some time looking at the distinction between church and state and household, how each is a separate sphere of authority instituted by God to exercise his rule over particular areas of life 
and with particular ends in mind. The household, to refresh your memory, what we today would call uh, welfare, education and provision and health care and those kinds of things. That is what God has given to it. The state is for maintaining a just and virtuous society by punishing evil and promoting civic behavior. And the church is for making disciples, speaking on behalf of God in Christ to bring his law to all people, to declare his forgiveness to them on condition of their repentance, to train them in righteousness, and also to put them out of his kingdom again if they will not walk in his ways. Now that we have seen these things, we have a much better idea of what makes a church a church and how the church also should relate to the state and the family, not overstepping its authority or trying to take on responsibilities that God has given to those other institutions, but rather bringing God's word to bear in every area of life for the benefit of those institutions so that they can in turn better exercise the rulership that Christ has given to them over their own domains. But we've not answered every question. In fact, we have not answered some very important questions because we have not discovered yet if there are specific elements that a church needs to count as a legitimate body of Christ. Are there key ingredients that you need for a true church? Things that if you leave them out, you don't get a church. Just like if you leave out the yeast in a loaf of bread, you don't get a loaf of bread. You get a cracker. It seems safe to assume that there must be such elements, such key ingredients. And so what are the things that a church needs or the things maybe that a church must do in order to be a church? That is what I want to focus on today and to some extent next week also. But today I want to make sure that we can confidently say what elements Christ requires of a congregation in order for him to recognize that congregation as a legitimate part of his body. I've chosen readings today that in some way describe for us these key elements. The first reading from Acts shows us what the New Testament considered fundamental to the character of of the churches planted by the apostles and the latter readings from Hebrews and especially from Revelation show us the same things, but they especially show it by focusing on what a church must do to remain a true church. They show us things that would cause Jesus to remove a church's lampstand, to revoke that church's status as part of his body if they mess it up. I've not chosen every possible reading, of course. For instance, there are many things, especially in Revelation chapters 2 to 3, that we learn a church can or must do or a church must not do in order to uh, keep its lampstand. And if they do those things or don't do those things, Jesus may remove their lampstand. But I have chosen readings that are representative so that we can get a sense of what are the key principles, what are the major elements. These things that other parts of Scripture, like the whole of Revelation 2 to 3, for instance, flesh out and provide more detail on, I want to give a kind of high-level overview. And again, I'm not going to um, systematically exegete these passages. They are here to guide us. The way that I count these elements, there are four, four elements of a true church. But today I want to look at just the first three. And this is because the fourth one, which correlates with the breaking of bread, and you could add prayers in Acts 2, requires us to look at worship as a whole. And that is something that will take us at least a sermon of its own. 
And so we will start to investigate that next week. Where I want to start today is by going to the simplest possible elements. And I want to start with what Hebrews 10 says and Acts 2 takes for granted as necessary for worship. Which is simply assembling together. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the nature of the church as a congregation, as a body, and we looked at what the Greek term ekklesia behind the term church means and how it is it literally refers to a gathering. It is an assembly of people. There is no church without a gathered people of God. This is presupposed in our passage in Acts two. You you cannot do the things that the churches were doing in Acts two without getting together. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking bread. These things were done as groups. But this comes into special focus in Hebrews because the Hebrews were under persecution and were being tempted to forsake gathering together. And so Hebrews 10 speaks specifically to this issue, but not just Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 commands the gathering, but Hebrews 12, which we read, explains the reason for the command. It explains why the command matters. It explains what is so significant about gathering. Now, again, I'm going to look at this more next week, but what it does is it connects the gathering of the church to the gathering of Israel to establish the covenant before God at Mount Sinai. This was an event that set the pattern for every later gathering at the Temple Mount itself. This connection between gathering and worship and covenant renewal is really foundational to the church's very existence. It really constitutes the church as a church. Look at how Peter describes it in 1 Peter 2, 3-5. He says, You have tasted that the Lord is gracious, unto whom coming... A living stone rejected indeed of men, but with God elect, precious, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I really want us to understand what we are doing in worship according to Scripture And why, therefore, we worship the way that we do here at Redwood rather than in a way that seems more natural or comfortable or even enjoyable to our modern sensibilities, as most churches today do. But, again, that is for next time. Today, what I want to do is to help you to see simply this. Peter, and Hebrews, says that we are coming to the Lord to be built up into a spiritual house and offer spiritual sacrifices. And the author of Hebrews further explains that when we assemble in worship, we are encountering God, not in fire and smoke on a physical mountain as Israel did, but we are encountering him on the true Mount Zion that Jared spoke of when he looked at Psalm 125, the heavenly Jerusalem, and that we are coming into the midst of the perfected saints, who have gone before us into heaven and into the midst of uncountable angels in festal array and to Jesus himself and to God, the judge of all. Did you know that that is what we are doing right now? You should. I remind you every time we gather to worship, remember, I I actually read this bit from Hebrews, but... It is easy to forget or it is easy to think that this is metaphorical language or it is in some way not really real. 
You do not see them, these saints, these angels, Jesus, God himself, but they are here. Or maybe more correctly, we are there. The point that Hebrews makes, the very reason that its author tells us not to forsake assembling ourselves together, is if Israel dared not refuse God's call to worship on Mount Sinai, how much more dare we not refuse his call to worship in the heavenly places themselves? Not just how dare we, but how could we? How could we neglect such a glorious and gracious blessing? To enter into heaven itself, to worship before God and receive his blessing, what greater thing could we ever possibly do in this life? What could possibly matter enough to prevent us from doing that? What could ever be more important than that? Our lives? But, work with me here, if we die, where will we go and what will we be doing? Will we not be entering into heaven itself to join the very saints who invisibly surround us right now, worshiping God? So you'll be saying that you don't want to enter heaven itself here on earth to worship because someone might kill you and then you'll enter into... You see how dumb this sounds, right? Anyway, as I say, um, I'm going to look at that more next time. The, The point to understand here, the reason I go into that now is that I want us to understand the importance of assembling together, how critical Scripture considers this, that there is no church without assembling together. I don't mean that a church stops being a church as soon as everyone goes home. It is not a church for only as long as it gathers. Rather, it is a church because it gathers. It becomes a church by gathering, and its churchiness is renewed and reaffirmed every time that it gathers again. Think of it this way. We don't stop existing as people when we sleep, right? But there is a sense in which sleep disintegrates us. I I mean that in the sense of disintegrate. We've talked about integration, not in the, the sense of literally falling to pieces. During the day, all of our faculties are integrated into a whole that we call ourselves, Remember how a body is a nexus of powers, a point at which various abilities to act are integrated into a self-governing whole? Well, when we sleep, all of those faculties, they disintegrate. They are no longer integrated into the whole that we call ourselves. The non sort of disappears. The, The body is still there, but I am not really there anymore. The person who controls them sort of dissipates, and yet we don't stop existing We are still a living soul. We can wake up again. We can reintegrate our faculties and stand upright. And that living soul once again manifests in the world. A church is something like that. Jared said that we need to hold these analogies weekly. Uh, Spiritual things are, are not like physical things, but a church is something like that. A church is also a body, as we've seen. It's bodies all the way down. And so a church is a body that wakes up, as it were, when it gathers And it sleeps during the week. I don't mean this as if a church were a person, obviously. But I mean that the same pattern is going on. A church is a body that sleeps when it is not gathered and stands upright when it does gather. And it does not go out of existence when it stops gathering. It is still a church during the week as much as we are still living souls during the night. But if it never gathers, 
if it never stops sleeping, then we may have reason to suspect that it is actually dead. It is actually not a church at all. Just like if someone never wakes up, it's a pretty good indication that they are not actually alive, or at least that they are desperately sick. We see this articulated expressly in Acts 2, where it speaks of the churches continuing steadfastly, not just in worship, but in all of the things that they gather for, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread. I think these things are constitutive of worship, but it, it indicates that they are, they are gathering in order to be churches, and you can extend that beyond mere worship, because a lot of what we do, as we know, when we gather, especially after church, um, that is not worship, strictly speaking, but it's still gathering. We'll look at these uh, elements in a moment. But it's important to recognize before we do that Scripture sets this condition of gathering, assembling in place. Hebrews 10 describes it in a similar way as holding fast to the confession of our hope and wavering not. So it's not just about assembling, it's about assembling continually, continually and steadfastly. In preparing for this sermon, I came across a comment from Sinclair Ferguson when he was asked to define a church recently. He said, you know, there are many good formulations that we can look to throughout history. There are great reformed formulations. We'll um, probably look at one of them, the Belgian Confession, next week. But he thinks that there is one question right now at the moment in view of our present situation that really gets to the heart of what a church is to the essence of the matter, and that is, are we a community willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? This is very much the idea behind continuing steadfastly. It's a consistency that is not interrupted. It does not waver when things get difficult. We put the first things first. Our faith is a living faith, a faith that believes and then lives as if serving the risen Christ And preaching his gospel really is the most important thing in the universe. This is not to say that a church stops being a church if it just doesn't meet for a couple of weeks. It skips a week or it, it gets interrupted. But if a congregation claims to be a church yet has no regular meeting, there is no continuing steadfastly, no regular schedule, no weekly gathering, or worse, if they have suspended worship indefinitely, and they have no idea when they will start back up again, then they are not meeting the standard that Scripture sets out for a church, at least until they fix the problem. They are, at the very least, a sick, a desperately sick church, just like a man who cannot wake up. They are churches in a coma. And if they come out of their coma only when they are allowed to, then it is not because they got better To get better would mean to start being steadfast and unwavering in the face of the opposition, to wake up from the coma of their own accord, not to have to wait until the opposition ends. A church that only comes out of its coma when it is allowed to is obviously a church that is still very sick, even though the symptoms may now be hidden for a while. So a church must gather, it must assemble, and it must do so continuing steadfastly. But how many must gather? This is a relevant question for us. Is there a lower limit on this? You know, a minimum number? The Lord Jesus had a dozen disciples. Must we have at least a dozen members to be a true church? 
Well, here is what he says to them, Matthew 18, verses 18 to 20. Verily I say unto you, what things soever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what things soever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is exercising the keys of the kingdom, which is something a church does. Again, I say unto you, that if two or three, excuse me, if two of you agree on earth, as touching anything that they ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now you may object the context here is church discipline, not worship. And that is true. But what does it matter to the point? We are asking how many people must be gathered in order for Christ to regard that gathering as a valid ecclesia, a valid church. Well, church discipline is an exercise of a church, is it not? The church gathers to use the keys of the kingdom, as Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 to 5. He says, For I verily, being absent in body, but present in spirit, have already, as though I were present, judged him that hath so wrought this thing. This is referring to a grievous sin in the congregation. In the name of our Lord Jesus, ye being gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this is referring to the exercise of church discipline, gathering as a church in order to put out a member who is in unrepentant sin. So if two or three gathering to exercise discipline are a valid church in Christ's eyes, as he says in Matthew 18, he says he is there in the midst of them. Why would two or three gathering to worship not be? Would he not be present among them when they gather to worship and yet be present among them when they gather to render judgment on his behalf? That makes no sense. If they are a church in the one case, then they are a church in the other. So even two or three people are enough. Now obviously that is a minimum number, but we are speaking to what is necessary, not what is normal or what is ideal. Two or three who gather in Christ's name can be a church and he is present in the midst of them. This, in turn, if you're thinking quickly, may raise another question in your mind. How can a church have elders if there are only two or three people? Well, probably it cannot. Remember, we are speaking to what is necessary for a church, not what is normal or ideal. We're looking at the very baseline qualifications, the minimum viable product, as they say in marketing, not the preferred or the desirable model for how a church functions. The New Testament actually tells us that churches do not have to have elders in order to be true churches, in order for Christ to recognize them as valid bodies. They should normally have elders, but very young churches sometimes do not have anyone who can function as a shepherd of the flock, and this does not stop them from being true churches. Look at Acts 14, verses 21 to 23. When they, which is Paul and Silas, had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed for them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed." What happens here is Paul and Barnabas go back through the towns where they have already made converts just one chapter before, chapter 13. So it's perhaps weeks or months previously, most likely at the most, probably not years. And they visit the churches in each of these towns. 
So these are new converts. They've just formed congregations, and they go back to these congregations in the towns, and they appoint elders for them. But notice the key point here. They are described as churches in which elders need to be appointed, not groups that become churches when elders are appointed. So congregations can be true churches without having elders. This brings us to the second major element that a church must have, and that is what Acts describes as continuing steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. In other words, a church must hold fast to the scriptures as received, and it must teach these scriptures to its members. This does not require elders, for we have just seen that elders are not required, but obviously it is normal for this teaching to be the responsibility of elders. I've preached on the nature of biblical eldership not too long ago, so I won't reiterate that here because it would take us far afield and it would make this a bit long. But what I want to draw your attention to is the necessity of contending earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints, as Jude 3 says. This is really just a restatement of the Great Commission. It is not merely the church's purpose, but the very foundation of its existence to teach everything which Christ commanded. A church is only a church if it is a pillar and a base of the truth, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15. And the truth, of course, is the scriptures. The church is founded on the rock of God's word and nothing else. And so a church must be founded on the rock of God's word and nothing else. Or you could say it is founded on the rock of Christ and it represents his word. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 and chapter 12. And now, O Israel, hearken unto the statutes and unto the ordinances which I teach you, remembering that Israel was the original church of God, to do them that ye may live and go in and possess the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, giveth you. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish from it, that ye may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God which I command you. And then chapter 12 continues, What thing soever I command you, that shall ye observe to do. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. And again, the same commandment is given to the church in Revelation twenty-two eighteen to 19 I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto them, remembering that Revelation is the end of the New Testament, so it is representing not just its own self here, but the whole of the scriptures. If any man shall add unto them, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city, which are written in this book. Notice carefully, it is not just the adding to the word which brings a curse, which of course is something which happens in cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the, well, the Mormons especially, but diminishing from it, taking away from what is written. And this, in my observation, is the greater danger today, at least in the, the true church, Because churches are unwilling to apply the whole counsel of God to all of life. They say that they believe, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and furnished completely for every good work. They say that they believe this, but they deny it, in their practice. 
They deny that every really means every. Surely it does not mean good works with respect to what is righteous and what is unrighteous in, say, voting for a political party, or what is righteous and unrighteous in educating your children, or, you know, it doesn't mean good works with respect to the movies that you watch or the music that you listen to or the clothes that you wear or any of the other things that are regarded by our culture today as personal and individual choices and thus sacrosanct. Christ does not have authority over personal individual choices and does not speak to such matters in his word. That is what their teaching, their practice says. But to take this position, to practice the, in practice to refuse to teach on these issues, is really to say that Scripture is not profitable to fully equip a man of God to completely furnish him for every good work. It is really only profitable to equip him for work in the church. And in this way, churches today refuse to continue steadfastly in the teaching of the apostles that is, the teaching of the scriptures, and so they risk coming under a curse for diminishing from God's law. I am not putting them under a curse. I'm saying that they risk coming under a curse from God. The necessity of a church to be devoted to the teaching of the apostles and to continue steadfastly in it is central to our concerns here at Redwood. Last week, I shared with you one of the descriptions of what our work must look like from our mission and our vision which was the importance of limiting our ministry to what God has defined for the church. Today, let me read another of these descriptions which balances against it because it speaks to the issue of continuing in the teaching of the apostles the way that the church is instructed to speak to every area of life, even though it is not given authority over every area of life. This is also one of the key principles that we are building. Um, so I've got, I've got a key principle and a key practice that we're building on from that key principle. So firstly, here's the principle. Number two, this is from our, our mission and vision. Number two is scriptural fidelity. Because fulfilling the Great Commission involves teaching everything that Christ commanded, we are committed to the authority and sufficiency of God's word in both making us wise for salvation and in equipping us for every good work, whether religious, domestic, or civil. In other words, whether in the church or in the household or in the state or the public square. We are fully committed to the continual work of knowing and applying God's word ever more deeply and comprehensively, end quote. Now this in turn leads to a practical vision of what our work must look like. Again, this is item number two of what our work must look like, helping everyday Christians deeply read and apply God's word. We teach all of our members patiently to become skillful in reading and appreciating God's word. We instruct them in the hard but satisfying work of deeply understanding it, submitting to it, and applying it to every issue of life in a way that is careful, clear, and encouraging. Now that phrase, every issue of life, is very important to our focus here at Redwood. It is not a frivolous or casual addition. We didn't just stick it in to sound pious. It is central to our entire approach to Christian life, to learning, to discipleship. And that brings us to the third of the elements that characterize the New Testament churches of Acts, which is not just continuing steadfastly in teaching, but continuing steadfastly in fellowship, devotion to fellowship. 
This is described also in Hebrews 10, that we must consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not neglecting gathering together. You see, this fellowship is more than mere friendship. It is not just getting together and hanging out, enjoying each other's company. It is purposeful. Its aim is love and good works. In other words, what we are talking about here is discipleship, training in righteousness. It is the church's teaching ministry put into action in our lives. It is faith working through love. This is actually about church discipline. The way that it was viewed historically was this is church discipline. You don't have a true church without that, which might sound odd because we tend to think of church discipline rather negatively in the modern day. We tend to think of it as punishment, but it is helpful to think of it much more like self-discipline. That is the connotation that it should have to us. Discipline does not mean punishment. It can involve punishment, but what it means is regulation, right ordering, training for the purpose of producing moral improvement and a godly character and pattern of behavior. Discipline and discipleship come from the same root word. In Latin, it is discipulus. I do not speak Latin, meaning a pupil or a student. In other words, a disciple. So church fellowship is really mutual discipleship. Now the negative side, neglecting this fellowship, this mutual discipleship, is described in Revelation 2, where Jesus warns the church at Ephesus that he is going to remove their lampstand if they do not repent. I have this against thee, that thou didst leave thy first love. He does not say what that first love was, but I think it is very difficult to understand this passage if he doesn't mean himself. If this means anything less than his own person, it's very hard to understand what he is saying. Their first love was Christ himself and the fellowship that comes through Christ. You see the things that the church at Ephesus had going for it. He describes them and you think, wow, this is a great church toil and patience, refusal to bear with evil men, would that we had more of that, discernment in trying false apostles and finding them false, amen, bearing for his name's sake and not growing weary, hating the works of the Nicolaitans who were heretics who Jesus also hated. On paper, this sounds like an amazing church. Isn't this what we want with Redwood? Would we not want to be part of a church that had such discernment, such patience, such commitment to refusing false doctrines and false teachers? It was a church of faith, continuing steadfastly in the teaching of the apostles. But that church was in danger of having its lampstand removed. It was a church in need of repentance. Yes, it was a faithful church, but it was a church that had lost its love. It had lost its heart. It was a church of sound doctrine, a church of dogged commitment, a church that hated false teachers, a church that had faith in the scriptures and a church that continued steadfastly in the apostles' right, uh, apostles' teaching. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 too, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. The church at Ephesus was in danger of a church that was not being nothing. It was a church that, in pursuing faith, in devoting itself to the apostles' teaching, had forgotten the very thing that made those things matter, the love of Christ. For in Christ, 
There is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but faith working through love. And this too is something that we have an explicit vision for at Redwood. The third point of what our work must look like in our mission statement is this. Number three, fostering a church culture that is accessible and challenging. We have a way of life, worship, singing, teaching, fellowship, and mutual discipleship that loves and serves people as they are while seeking excellence in all things. It is proactive about caring and praying for others while also expecting, encouraging, and helping them to see all of life as service to God so that they may press on to perfect love and piety. Now, let me say, this is probably the point that we've articulated least well, in my opinion. I'm the the least happy with the wording of it. But that final phrase captures well the intent. We want our ministry to be one that encourages and indeed pushes people to press on to perfect love and piety. Perfect love of neighbor, perfect love of God in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the three qualities or elements that Scripture shows us to be foundational to the nature of a church, or three of the elements that are foundational to the nature of a church, the key ingredients in its makeup. They are like the flour and the yeast and the water in a loaf of bread. You can, you can bake flour with water, and like I said, you'll get a cracker. And in the same way, you can mix assembling together and devotion to Scripture, and you'll get a congregation with heart, but with no heart, no love. It'll just be a congregation of head knowledge. You can bake flour with yeast, and, well, you'll get burned powder, I suppose, in the same way you can mix assembling together with devotion to fellowship, and you'll get a very dedicated social club, but you will not get a church. And you can bake water with yeast, and I guess what you'll get is hot, smelly water, and in the same way, you can, de- you can mix devotion to the apostles' teaching with fellowship, and you'll get something like online worship, but you will not get a church. But when you bake flour and yeast and water together, and not neglecting the fact that there are other things you can put in which will make it better, you get a loaf of bread, and if you mix assembling and teaching and fellowship together, you get the makings of a church. But if you are tracking carefully, you should be wondering... What about the other two things that I mentioned in Acts 2? Did you notice this? That I've only covered the first half. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. We've talked about teaching and fellowship, instruction, mutual discipleship. We've added the necessity of meeting together as foundational to both. But what about breaking bread and prayers? Well, there is only so much that we can hold in our heads at once. And there's only so much that I can write in a week. So we will be looking at this next week. I want to start bringing together the key ingredients of a church by tying it all back to worship itself. We saw at the beginning of the sermon how important worship is to understanding assembling. I think that when we connect the teaching and the fellowship of the church to worship, it starts to make a great deal more sense. And fundamentally in Acts 2, what it is showing us as a kind of core principle is worship itself. So next week, I want to start asking, what are we doing when we worship? What's so special about worship? Why does it matter? How does it connect with the rest of what a church does? And also, should we be celebrating the Lord's Supper? 
And for now, I want to leave you with these three elements that we have studied, being steadfast in assembling together, in devotion to the apostles' teaching, and in mutual discipleship through fellowship. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word that explains to us so clearly the things that you require of your people. Thank you that you have given us your word that we may be committed to it and continue steadfastly in it, being devoted to your teaching. Thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit that knits us together and helps us to understand your word, enables us to be enlightened by it, and also knits us together as a community, as a congregation, as a body who can have true fellowship and stir one another up to love and good works. Thank you that you have given us a spirit not of fear, but of boldness, a spirit that will not forsake assembling together. Help us to live in that spirit, to abide in him, to cleave unto him, and help us to represent you well in doing the work of a church. Help us to understand what it is that you want and to do it and to keep it. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.